Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we are dedicated to the history of warfare from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. Helena Merriman is on the podcast. She is an award-winning journalist, author, and documentary maker. Helena has worked as a reporter all over the world with stints in Jerusalem, Egypt. She spent time with resistance fighters on the front line in Libya, and it was her time working in conflict-torn regions with divided people peoples that inspired her to write a new book on a remarkable aspect of history, Cold War, East Berlin and the Berlin Wall. The book is called Tunnel 29 and it's a true story of an extraordinary escape beneath the Berlin Wall. Helena provides us with the gripping thriller-esque step-by-step details of this daring escape but also a broader history of how rapidly the Berlin Wall was constructed and the political motivations behind it. I know you're going to love this one because, well... The people who made the HBO hit series Chernobyl have just bought the rights to it. So, keep an eye out for that one. Go and pop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And enjoy this episode with Helena Merriman. Hi, Helena. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very well. Thanks for having me, James. Not a problem at all. I know you've had a busy summer. You've got the book out. It must be good to be able to promote the book in person. Have you had many live events now? Just beginning to. The live ones are beginning again, which is great because it's so much more exciting seeing people in 3D, not just in two-dimensional screen versions of themselves. It is. And just being able to see people's reactions to the book, to be able to sign copies in person. You know, I've I've talked to lots of people who've come on this podcast. A lot of my friends have published books during COVID. And there's obviously so many worse things that have happened over the last 18 months. But it does take the special aspect of publishing a book out of it. So it's great you're able to publish it now. That's true. And I'm about to do my first online book signing. How does that work? I have no idea. I'll let you know. (laughs) I've got visions of you kind of holding one of those whiteboard pens or something and people holding their books up to the screen but I'm not sure how this is going to work no I'll feed back if it works <laughs> oh what uh, maybe they could connect it to like a robotic arm I'm going off on a tangent here I like that uh, yeah and then the arm can sign it for you yes no this is good this is good <laughs> 
You could simultaneously sign thousands of books around the world all at once. This is a new business idea, James. Patent it. Think of the power. <laughs> <laughs> I gift it to the world, Helena. I gift it to the world. <laughs> Let's hope it isn't a multi-million pound. It's not a multi-million pound idea. Anyway, we are here not to talk about the future of robotic book signings, but we're here to talk about history, obviously. History of the Cold War, actually. In fact, we're diving into 1960s Berlin. And tensions are starting to get a little bit hot at this point in time. If I remember correctly, the Stasi are really trying to turn the screws on a number of people in terms of their interrogation techniques. Perhaps you could use the word torture. Things aren't going well in Berlin, well, East Berlin, and it's not a nice place to live. Tell us about this period. Why does it start to get even more tense during this time? Yeah, so the 1960s, you've had 15 years of the new East Germany by this point, this new, this Stalinist experiment that's been led by Walter Ulbricht, who is this very serious, charmless man who wants to pursue Stalinism at all costs. So by the early 1960s, this has been going for 15 years and the experiment hasn't been going well. And the one very clear way to see that is through the number of people leaving East Germany. And so by the early 1960s, around a fifth of the country, three million people had left East Germany. They'd just gone over the border because back then, before the Berlin Wall, you could just jump on a train or a bus or even just walk across and they would go into West Berlin and they wouldn't come home at the end of it because they were just fed up with poor living standards, having very little choice about their life, about what they did. But also, as you mentioned there, the Stasi, the formidable secret police who knew everything about everyone and who would make your life very, very difficult if they didn't consider you to be a model socialist citizen. So by the early 1960s, you had so many people leaving that Walter Ulbricht, who's the leader of East Germany, he realises that if he doesn't do something about it, his country is just going to fall apart. So he comes up with this radical solution, which is to just lock people in, to build a wall and lock people in. And what I found fascinating when I was researching this was that I'd always thought that this was an idea that his Soviet commissars had approved of, that they'd encouraged him to do. But it turns out that they thought this was a terrible idea because they said, you know, if you have to build a wall to lock people in, then we become a laughing stock, You know, right at that time, this is the Cold War. They're trying to persuade everyone that communism is better than capitalism. But if you have to build a wall to lock people in, it's clear that they've lost. But after months and months and months of more people leaving, they realise that East Germany is about to fall apart. So they finally say to him, all right, then build your wall. So did things get that bad? Was there so much brain drain and just the drain of people who were needed to make society run? Are we talking towards that end point? Did it get to a point where there were thousands of people crossing a day? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they would all arrive in this refugee camp called Marienfelder. And, you know, these were doctors, teachers, nurses. You would have whole villages in East Germany without a single doctor by the early 1960s or without a single teacher because so many people were leaving. And as so often is the case, and we see this today, it's often the youngest and the brightest who leave. And that's why he was so worried. And, you know, he was even losing politicians and soldiers. And so it was highly embarrassing for him that so many people kept leaving. And was it that because doctors and teachers and the educated were targeted more harshly by the Stasi? I think for a lot of them, it's because those were the people who had got a taste of life in West Berlin. So there was a particular word 
called Grenzgänger, which describes border crosses. So people who lived in East Berlin, but who would cross to West Berlin for work, whether they were a teacher or going across if they were a journalist or whatever job they might have. And then they would come home at the end of the day. And it was giving people a little snapshot of life in the West, because West Berlin by this point was possibly the most American city outside of the US. It was stuffed with all night bars and hamburger joints and old American army stores. And so it just felt very American. And you would have people from East Berlin who would go there just to watch the fancy American cars driving around the streets to look in all the department store windows and watch all the women wandering around with fur coats and stockings. And a lot of people just, that life was incredibly alluring So for some people, it was the pull of West Berlin. And for other people, it was just the fear of living in a country where so much of your life was controlled by the party and by the Stasi. And how did the Western powers react to this as the wall started to be built? Well, it was so incredibly quick. And when I was doing the research for the book, there were so many moments where I found myself almost disbelieving the speed of it. I don't think there's been another wall or barrier built in history that's gone up so quickly. So this barbed wire barrier appears suddenly over one night in the middle of August. Walter Albrecht, he's planned it for months before. He orders in barbed wire, even from countries as far away as Britain, because he doesn't want people to realise what he's up to back in East Germany. And so he plans it all for this holiday in the middle of August. It's the date of the children's annual fair. So you have children out on the streets eating ice cream, watching fireworks. And as they're doing that, you have these tanks rumbling towards Berlin, ready to catch anyone who might escape. And then at one in the morning, the streetlights are turned off. And then under the cover of darkness, you have soldiers driving up to points all along the border, and they're pulling out these huge coils of barbed wire and stringing them all along the border. And so... When people wake up the next morning, sort of five or six in the morning, the wall is there, the barrier is there. It's not the concrete wall that it later becomes, but it's a barbed wire barrier that's now protected by border guards. And some of the most extraordinary stories were about the children who were suddenly separated from their parents. So you have newborn babies, for example, who might have been in hospitals in West Berlin suddenly separated from their mothers and their fathers who might be in East Berlin. Or you might have five or six-year-old children who were perhaps staying with their grandparents on one side of the barrier, suddenly separated from their parents on the other side. And so there were hundreds of children who were then sent to orphanages or foster parents because they were suddenly separated from their family. And how long did it take to sort issues like that out? Was there political communication between the two sides? Or is this something that just went on on an ad hoc basis on the hope that you could perhaps sort something out in time over months or years? Well, you know, so when Berlin was divided, not only were the roads divided and the train stations boarded up, but also the phone lines were cut. So the people who did have telephones, because of course not everyone had a telephone back then, but the people who did try to phone family that night and they couldn't even phone people on the other side of the border because the phone lines had been cut. So there are these photos and footage from that day, the 13th of August, 1961. And you can see people standing on cars and waving out of windows, holding white handkerchiefs and just waving to their families on the other side because 
that's all they can do. There's no way of communicating. So they're caught completely unaware. Even politicians are caught unaware. So Walter Ulbricht only told a handful of people, the head of the Stasi, Erik Mielke, and a few others. But apart from that, no one else knew until he announces it at 10 o'clock that evening on the Saturday evening when he has a little garden party, invites all his ministers, and then tells them what he's about to do. So no one, no one can make a plan. No one knows what's going on. You know, not even... Western spies who were in Berlin had any idea what was going on. You know, you had 70 spy agencies in the city at that time, and none of them knew that this was about to happen. No one was keeping an eye on the sheer amount of barbed wire that was being imported into East Berlin. That's quite an intelligence failure, isn't it? But also sadly traumatic for those cut off from their families, their newborn infants, but strangely impressive in terms of a feat of logistics and military movement to put this up overnight without anyone noticing. Totally. I mean, it's one of the most audacious, ambitious, impressive plots that a government has ever carried out against its own people. And actually what's interesting was that American CIA agents did photograph barbed wire and concrete posts building up at points along the border. And in one of the files that I read for the book, it said that someone had written a letter saying, oh, this looks like building material for a wall. But the idea was discounted straight away because they thought that's just ludicrous. No one could be crazy enough to build a wall and divide Berlin. So they ignored the evidence in front of them. That is incredible. Was it always meant to be a wall? Because, of course, we know of like a mission creep, the fact that maybe it starts as a barbed wire fence, becomes a wall, but then as the public reaction mounts and becomes more tense, does it then start to get more militarised? Is this when you have the border post people being shot? Or was it always meant to be like that? No, it's a good question. It was, Walter Albright was meticulous with his planning. He always knew he wanted it to end up as a concrete wall that would stop anyone from getting over it. But he wasn't quite brave enough to start off with that. So his plan was to start off with a barbed wire wall and then to watch to see what the Americans would do. Because by building this, by erecting that barrier, he was breaking one of the agreements that was signed after the end of the war between the Soviet Union and the US. So he was waiting to see what the reaction might be from President Kennedy. And the beauty of Walter Ulbricht picking this date right in the middle of August was that all these Western leaders who might have reacted were caught completely unaware. So you have on the 13th of August, right at that point, you have Prime Minister Harold Macmillan of Britain is out grouse shooting. You've got President Charles de Gaulle on holiday at his country house and President Kennedy is out on his cabin cruiser in Cape Cod. So none of them are in the right place to figure out what to do. And so as a result, they don't react. It takes them a few days to work out what to do. And by then, that's emboldened Walter Albrecht to carry out the next stage of his plan. So it's three days later, three days after the barbed wire appears, he sends construction crews to the border and they bring along these huge cranes which lower down these vast concrete slabs and then the construction workers patch them together with mortar that sort of drips slowly down the sides. And that's then the beginning of the concrete monstrosity that becomes the Berlin Wall. So note to self, if you ever want to pull the rug under the west or indeed pull the wool over their eyes then you do it in august everyone's on holiday (laughs) also seems quite sadly pertinent as we see the taliban make massive gains in august this year through into kabul i wonder if that's had anything to do with uh, politicians being on holiday and unable to discuss it with each other no you're right and i think so much of the time it's tempting to look back on history and see these much bigger arguments and forces at work and just to forget the nature 
of things like luck and timing and where world leaders happen to be and those sorts of very practical things. And I think had Walter Ulbricht done this a few months earlier, you know, history might have been very different. So President Kennedy's chief advisor on Berlin, who was a man called General Clay, and he was a guy who was responsible for the Berlin airlift that saved West Berlin back in the late 1940s. He later on said that had President Kennedy done more, had the Americans perhaps sent tanks to the border, showed a bit of muscle, showed they weren't going to stand for this, perhaps the barbed wire barrier wouldn't have then become a concrete wall. So there's, there are some very big what ifs that go on when you look into the details of that week. Pretty bold thing to do, though, Helena. I mean, we're talking about nuclear tensions at this time. You're not going to start driving tanks over imposed fault lines, red lines, if you will, literal lines, and moving tanks into enemy territory. That's it. And that's why he doesn't do it. And Kennedy famously says a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. So he doesn't want to risk nuclear war over this. But a year later, in October 1962, he finally does become strong enough to realise that he can show a bit of muscle. And that's when he famously does send tanks to the border. And that's the first time he really stands up to Khrushchev. And that's what turns him into a hero for West Berliners. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There are stories to tell, myths to explore, legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination. 
I'm Matt Lewis, and with my co-host, Dr. Kat Jarman, I've gone medieval. We're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hits. So what got you interested in this? Because, of course, you have a vast amount of experience in broadcasting and working with the BBC, and this was part of an amazingly successful podcast in its own right. What got you interested in this specific aspect? Yeah, it's a good question. It actually comes from my work as a BBC journalist. So I've worked all over the world, mostly in the Middle East. And one thing I noticed was that wherever I worked, in pretty much every single country that I'd happened to report from, Governments were either in the middle of building walls or they had plans to build some kind of barrier, either along their borders or dividing cities. Apparently, there is something like 70 countries now have some kind of wall or barrier. So that's a third of the world. And, you know, there's a lot that's been written about the politics behind those walls. But I was interested in a different question, which was, you know, what happens when a government builds a wall? Like, how does that change the city? How does that change the people who live there? And, what I was fascinated in with this story was that it was almost the most extreme example of that. You know, the Berlin Wall is the mother of all walls. It was built so quickly. But also this particular story, this particular escape story, gets into so much more than that. It gets into the birth of TV. It gets into the tactics of the Stasi, this terrifying secret police that so many modern secret police forces around the world are modelled on. It gets into this age of walls that we're living in. So it felt like a very modern story, which was just as well, because being a journalist at the BBC, <laughs> we're meant to be looking at current affairs, not history. So in some ways, I see this historical story as, as a very modern one, story for our times. The age of walls in which we live in. I mean, that's a disturbing sentence, isn't it, Helena? I suppose you're researching this at a time earlier on when Trump was building the Trump wall. But there was discussions at that point that that could become something enforced by drones. And then we can talk about non-physical walls as well. I mean, virtual walls that divide us. You have the Great Firewall of China that divides China's internet from the world. So I suppose you're right. This is a history for our times because the walls are all around us, even though we may not be able to see them. It's true. And I think what's interesting about walls is that Many of them do work. They achieve these quite short-term political solutions. I mean, actually, for the when it came to the Berlin Wall, most people, when it first appeared, thought, OK, maybe it will last a few months, maybe a few years at most. And then it lasts for 28 years. And it broadly is, in one way, it's effective during that time. It stops the brain drain. It keeps East Germany going much longer than it would have done had the wall not existed because more people would have just carried on leaving. But, of course, what they can't stop is people's desire to escape. You know, you see that around the world right now, whether it's the border between India and Pakistan, there are, you know, wherever you find walls, you find people trying to escape. And I think that's what's interesting about them. They become these very crude solutions to political problems that need other kinds of solutions. Well, it's certainly what's interesting about the history you've researched and, of course, the new book, Tunnel 29. Now, there's lots of harebrained schemes to try and get out of East Berlin. People even building their own aircraft in their garages and getting bits and bobs from around the country or smuggling them in to try and make that plane fly. I mean, loads of ways that people try to defect. But you focus in on this incredible effort to build tunnels. Tell us about this. Yeah, you're right. There are so many different ways that people try to escape, particularly in the first few days where, 
The escape attempts are pretty brazen and you have people just smashing vans into the wall or swimming through the river. But every month it gets harder, particularly once the Stasi are given orders to shoot people who are trying to escape and soon you have people starting to be killed. And in the book, I focus really in on one character. So he's a guy called Joachim Rudolf and he is 22 years old when the Berlin Wall goes up and he's living in East Berlin and he's desperate to escape. And one night he crawls through a field and it has a watchtower on the side of it with border guards inside it. But he manages to sneak by and he escapes into West Berlin. And here's where his story gets interesting, because you'd expect someone who's just escaped from this brutal, repressive regime. Once they've made it to the promised land, you'd expect them just to get on with their new life. But he doesn't, because... His is the refugee story you don't always hear so often, which is that he makes it to the promised land, but he finds life difficult. He finds that there's freedom, but almost too much freedom. And so he makes friends with a group of East Berliners, and between them they hatch this plan to dig a tunnel under the Berlin Wall back into East Berlin, back into the place he's just escaped from, to rescue other people who also want to escape. And that's where the tunnel plan all begins. And was he able to get support in this from the West? You say this is where the tunnel plans begin. Where does a tunnel plan begin, Helena? Because, I mean, a spade, I'm sure that helps, but you have to have vast amounts of engineering experience, surely. Where does the tunnel plan begin? Yeah, well, good question. So that, obviously, that was one of the first questions I asked Joachim, because he's still alive now, and I spent many hours interviewing him his flat in Berlin, where he lives now. Oh, that's incredible. That must have been amazing to hear the story straight from him. Yeah, and he. what's amazing about him, he has this phenomenal memory. So he remembers things in a very sonic way, which is obviously great for the podcast, but in just incredible details. So he, you know, he would remember everything about how long it took them to break through the ground the first night or just how far they got before the leak began. And I'm getting ahead of myself. So when it came to digging the tunnel, obviously, yeah, my first question was, how do you know where to begin? Where do you begin when you're digging a tunnel? And he said, oh, yeah, we had the same question, because it's not like people go around with billboards around their neck giving you instructions on how to dig a tunnel. Like it's this highly dangerous, secretive activity, because right from the start, when you're digging in Berlin, you have the eyes of the border guards who are watching from East Berlin. They stand right by the, the wall on these platforms overlooking the wall into West Berlin with binoculars. And they know that people are beginning to dig tunnels. So they have these listening devices that they put on the ground. And if they hear anyone digging a tunnel, they'll break open the ground and shoot into it or throw in dynamite. So this is a very dangerous activity they're about to embark on. Or there are the tunnels that just collapse because they're not dug very well and people are buried in mud. So it's a really, really dangerous thing they're about to do. But it happens that two of them are engineers. So, you know, they're pretty skilled up. And what they start doing is they start watching West Berlin TV because sometimes there are news reports about tunnels that have perhaps failed and they get a few ideas about the shape of the tunnels and how they should build it. And this is where it becomes just like Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> and, you know, those scenes where those heist movies all begin with a group of people sitting in a room, sprawling maps across a table. That's how it begins. They borrow maps from the West Berlin administrative department, from West Berlin local government, and they pour over these maps looking for a good place to start digging where they're not going to dig into electricity cables or the city's water supply. And that's how they figure out their route. And that's how they come to this decision to dig a tunnel right under Bernauerstrasse, which is the street that the Berlin Wall has divided in half. 
I mean, I can already see the film. I'm looking forward to going to the cinemas and watching this. I mean, it has to happen. Yeah, it's being written right now. It will be a TV series. After the podcast came out, we had yeah, a huge number of people getting in touch, wanting to tell the story in either a TV series or film. And very excitingly, it was going to be made by Sister Productions, who made the TV series Chernobyl. And it'll be directed by Johan Renk, who made Chernobyl. That's going to be incredible. I mean, that has to be one of my favourite series, a HBO series, probably the best I've seen since Band of Brothers. So I can only imagine what the cinematography of this is going to be like and just what an amazing job they're going to do of telling this story. But I need to find out more. I've got some practical questions because it's mind-boggling to me how this even begins to work. So how are they funded? We'll start with that one because it's not going to be cheap and they have to live as well as they're doing this and it's going to take quite a long time. And then number two, how do they get rid of all of the soil without being noticed? I know we've got the famous scenes from The Great Escape where you've kind of got the soil in the pockets and you're dropping it on the ground as you go for a walk. What do they do with the vast amounts of soil here? Yeah, so these are all very good questions. And these are things that they just have to figure out as they're doing it. So the first thing they need to find is somewhere safe that they can dig from. So somewhere they're not going to be seen wandering in and out in dirt, splattered clothes. So they go wandering up and down the street that's right next to the wall. And they find this factory that makes those cocktail straws that, you know, you get in a nice long drink of, I don't know, mojito or something. And they ask the factory owner, the factory owner finds them there. And they come up with a story. They say, oh, we're a jazz band. We were just looking for somewhere to rehearse. And it turns out this guy also escaped from East Berlin. He eventually gets out from them what they're really up to. And he says, OK, you can use it. I'm all for escape tunnels. I hate that country. And he allows them to use his cellar. So one night, and this is May 1962, they climb into a cemetery, climb over the wall, and they steal wheelbarrows and spades and trowels. And they put it all into a van and they take it to this factory and they just mark out a space on the concrete floor and they start digging down. And they've made some rough calculations and they work out they need to dig down about three metres so they can get deep enough. And once they've done that, they start digging horizontally towards East Berlin. Does anything go wrong along the way, however, because I can, I, I can imagine this I mean, was not smooth sailing. It would be pretty boring if nothing did go wrong, wouldn't it? You're probably so, right. Unluckily for them, but luckily for me as the storyteller, a lot goes wrong, whether it's just the electric shocks they get on a daily basis or whether it's the leak that they get a month into digging once they're almost under the Berlin Wall. So they've made it about 60 metres by this point. They spent weeks digging and it's beset by a leak and they spend weeks scooping out thousands of gallons of water. They even borrow a hose from the West Berlin Water Department. That's still not enough. And they have to, in the end, they have to go and get help from the West Berlin Water Department, who then send a team of plumbers to fix the leak. And then they have this problem of money. And this is where the story gets totally fascinating. So they need money because they need more money for tools and to pay some of the diggers because they have a big, quite a big group of diggers by then. And so they start hunting around, start trying to have sort of secret conversations with people in the world of journalism that they know. And eventually they are connected to a correspondent, a journalist in Berlin who works for NBC, the American News Broadcasting Corporation. And it just so happens that one of the most hotshot TV producers at NBC, a man called Reuven Frank, has come up with this idea to try to find an escape story, to try to find a group of people 
who are hatching an escape and he wants to film it. He wants to film every twist and turn because his idea is that if he does that, not only will it be an incredible story for people in the US to watch, but he wants to win the ratings battle between NBC and CBS News. And that battle has really just got going. So he puts word out in Berlin through his correspondence saying, right, if you can find an escape story, you can find any people trying to hatch an escape, let me know, you know, we'll make a deal with them. And this is how the two groups of people find each other. And so you have here one of the most controversial deals made in the history of TV, which is an American news corporation funding a group of German students who are digging a tunnel under the wall in one of the most dangerous cities on earth. Because, you know, at that point, one stray shot in a tunnel under the border with an American journalist inside it. And who knows where that could have ended up. But that's the deal they make. And and NBC say, we will give you $7,500. And in return, you must allow us to film everything. And that's the deal that they make. That's a lot of money for them as well. I don't know what the conversions are back to today. But that's an incredible amount of money. Yeah, it is. You know, that gets them everything from more wheelbarrows to theodolites so they can work out where they're going to just sandwiches and tea and coffee and beer and cigarettes and money to pay extra diggers. And this is breaking, you know, for any journalists listening to this, they'll know that one of the most sacred tenets of being a journalist is that you never get involved. You observe, but you never get directly involved. And here was NBC breaking that fundamental premise. Well, there is an ethical obligation there for the journalists, you know, to take and consider the lives of those people, these young students who are going to be put at risk in this. But also there are great political ramifications, like you say, if one of these journalists is killed during the process or it's found out by the East Germans that the Americans are are somewhat funding this. I know that you've covered across the Middle East and you've covered on Gaza. I'm pretty sure this isn't something that you've looked to do yourself. You've not been funding tunnels under the Gaza Strip. Well, James, world exclusive on History Hit Warfare. No, no. I mean, gosh, I thought of going to anyone in the BBC and making this kind of deal. Like, It's just extraordinary. You know, they try at the beginning. They are very good about stepping back. And when Piers Anderton, who is the NBC correspondent in Berlin, when he goes to the tunnel, you know, he never helps. But as time goes on and as people will find out if they read the book, they end up getting pulled into it in a fascinating way and... Once you're so invested in an escape story and you've been with these people night after night, week after week, month after month, seeing them dig this tunnel, when it gets to this final moment, NBC plays a crucial role in the escape and they find it too hard to step back. But you're right to say, you know, in your early question, what if people in East Germany find out? And that's exactly what does happen because unbeknownst to this group of student diggers, One of the people in their group who is a gay hairdresser, he's 21 years old, he's called Siegfried. He is a Stasi spy. So everything that he discovers about this tunnel, he passes on to his Stasi handlers. And that's the most terrifying moment for them. And a lot of people had their lives changed in the most horrific ways because of that. There's this extraordinary moment when they finally have this plan ready for August and They have almost 100 people in East Berlin ready to crawl through this tunnel. And right in the middle of the afternoon, Siegfried, this hairdresser, is asked to become part of the operation. And so he's given all the details about it. He then goes to tell his Stasi handler everything. And they then set a trap. And they send Stasi soldiers and informants to the site where the tunnel is. And they just stand there waiting for people to arrive. And what was wonderful about writing this book is that 
there are so many Stasi files which give you minute by minute detail of what happens over those months and over the day of that escape. And so you can completely recreate the events of that day. So you you have described in these files how elderly men and women, children, families, husbands and wives are walking up to the tunnel and one by one they are bundled into cars and taken away, taken to Stasi prisons where their interrogations begin. And what about the tunnelers themselves? Were they also captured? Yeah, so they get away. I think probably the most terrifying moment for them is they dig the tunnel up into a little cottage. Joachim climbs out, he breaks through into the living room. And it's only once he's in the living room that he notices some movement outside one of the windows. And he walks towards it and he sees a man in plain clothes running under the window. So he knows straight away he's Stasi. But even then, he doesn't run away because he's determined to try and find some way of salvaging what's going on. And there's an extraordinary moment where it's written about in these files where you have the Stasi outside the room watching him through a crack in the door and they're just about to go in to arrest him when they suddenly hear the diggers talking about their machine gun because they've taken weapons with them. And back then the Stasi only have Kalashnikovs, which they know are no match for the machine gun. So they wait, they wait for backup. And it's that waiting that gives Joachim the chance to then jump into the tunnel. He crawls back. And so they're okay. They make it back to West Berlin. But quite a few others are arrested, including someone called Wolf Dieter, who I spent many hours interviewing, who told me just, you know, some extraordinary things about what it was like to be interrogated by the Stasi and then to be in a Stasi prison and to be in one of the very first Stasi show trials, the details of which are just extraordinary. Well, I want our listeners, of course, to have enough left so they go and buy the book and also so that we're all ready to watch the new TV series when it comes out. The last thing we want to do is give away the endings and all of the details. Thank you so much for bringing this history to us. Like you say, it is reflective of the times in which we live now, but it's also just a fascinating history in itself and one that I knew so little about. Really excited to see the TV series, to read the book. Tell us, where can we buy it? Well, it's out now, you know, Waterstones, it's called Tunnel 29. And yeah, wherever people are listening to this, it's been published in the US and I think something like 18 other countries, including Japan and Finland, Sweden, Italy, France. So listeners everywhere should be able to get a hold of it in whatever language they want to read it in. That is amazing. So good to hear because it is an international story. Like you say, there are walls all around the world that divide us. And this story helps shine light on that. Thank you so much, Helena. Thank you so much, James. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.